All right. Uh, I have not been in the courtroom for a year and three quarters, so this is an auspicious event. Um, Judge Wallace has been a bit, I think. Uh, and we're now doing this strange mixed version. So um, we are pleased to have you such as it is. And we are pleased to be back a second time with this extremely interesting case. Um, as informed by the Supreme Court's latest wisdom. So we are ready to begin. Um, as usual, uh, the uh, appellant can reserve time, uh, and we will not watch your time, but I will give you a minute or two. In any event, I don't think we'll be too closely rigid about time, given the importance of the case and the fact that we only have one case right now. So we will begin... Um, with um, Mr. Verrilli. Thank you. Thank you, and good afternoon, and may it please the court. I'm Don Verrilli for LinkedIn. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal, please. We're here, as, as Your Honor indicated, on remand for the, from the Supreme Court for reconsideration in light of Van Buren. Now, as before, the question is whether HiQ accessed LinkedIn servers without authorization in the meaning of the CFAA. Van Buren tells one how to answer that question. It is a gates up or gates down inquiry. One either can or cannot access a computer system. And uh, that differs from this court's prior approach, we think, in a critical way. This court previously held that the key consideration was whether information was private or public. As we read it, the court held previously that the CFAA's prohibition on access without authorization covered only gaining access to password-protected information when you're not authorized to do so. Court, I think, saw that uh, authorization presupposed that the information had to be otherwise private in this way. I'm um, having a little trouble hearing you. But that's not... Just a minute. I'm having a little trouble hearing you, and I don't know why that We're is. not hearing. Um, I think there's something wrong with this machine. Would you get in touch with our tech people? Are you not hearing anything whatsoever, or is it just quiet? Hearing quite a lot, but we're, it, it, you're, you're speaking fairly quickly and, and dropping off some. This was putting out a lot of... Uh, and it may have to do with the way we're connecting up. It just stopped. Okay. Let's try again. Okay, okay, so I, we heard what you, at least I heard okay. what you said. Yes, I, won't take it from, I won't take it from the top. Okay. <laughs> um, we think Van Buren goes at the question differently than this court did previously. Uh, under Van Buren, the user either can or cannot access the information. Uh, the gates are either up or down. We think that kind of a gates up or gates down analysis allows for revocation of previously granted authorization even to otherwise publicly available information. But there's certainly nothing the in Van Buren, nothing in Van Buren addresses that question. And it, it neither addresses um, the, the public accessibility situation as a, as a specific circumstance, nor the revocation to discrete people uh, of otherwise publicly uh, accessible websites, right? And it certainly illustrates, does specifically um, address uh, a great concern about um, the application 
two websites with regard to without authorization of external verbal communications. So I agree with your honor that Van Buren doesn't resolve the question, but I do think Van Buren marks the path for how the question should be resolved. And I think what the court said at page 13 of the slip opinion is that it's either a gates up or a gates down inquiry. Now, our submission is that even in a situation in which the gates are up for most users on a publicly available website, there are code based technological measures that allow the gates to be brought down for some users. And that's what happened. One thing that was never very clear in the earlier iteration of this case is in what sense this is a technological problem. My understanding of the way bots operate is they don't in any sense get into the innards of the computer. They simply do mechanically what could otherwise be done one by one by one by a person and then aggregate whatever data is collected, but it isn't collected by any technological hocus pocus. It's just collected by taking each individual externally available LinkedIn posting and opening it up mechanically instead of by a person's hand and then aggregating it. Is that accurate? I don't disagree with any of that, Your Honor, but I do think that with respect to the way the statutory text operates, that that kind of connection with a computer server that's hosting a website is access within the meaning of the statute. Access, I'm saying it's not any different access except there's a lot of it that happens with a person. Yes, but I do think the key point I think I'd like to get the court to focus on, and I do think looking back at the court's prior opinion, it did seem like the court was focused then on the question of whether what the Van Buren court said in footnote 8 were contract or policy-based limitations on access. That's a peculiar business because it did say that, and then it seemed in the opinion to actually resolve that very question because it said after that footnote, it gets into the specific question of websites, and it says that there expresses a great deal of concern about what would happen with regard to written directions that accompany websites and doesn't think they ought to be covered. I'm going to read the piece in one second. On page 18 of the slip, which is what I have here, many website services and databases authorize a user's access only upon his agreement to follow specified terms of service. If the exceeds authorized assets clause and company violations, it's difficult to see why it would not also accompany violations of restrictions on a website provider's computer. So that seems to resolve the very question that it says it isn't resolving, or at least to point very heavily in a direction. I don't think so, Your Honor, and allow me if I could to try to explain why because there's an important predicate here, 
And I think that predicate, which is the key to our argument, will help the court understand why that concern doesn't arise. Our principal argument here is that intentional circumvention of code-based technological barriers, and in particular, with respect to this case, it's the IP blocking mechanisms, that that constitutes authorization, that constitutes access without authorization, and it's circumvention of those technological blocks. And the cease and desist notice serves as a principally... So you're not relying on the cease and desist letter? What if you had only the cease and desist letter? Correct. So I think, what I will say is I think that the Power Ventures precedent leaves that question open, whether cease and desist letter is enough on its own, but that is not the position we're advocating in front of the court today. Our position is narrower. The narrower position is that the technological block, the IP block, is a gates down. So does that mean that you can... So leaving... What this amounts to is that the bot part of this, the scraping part of this, seems to have nothing to do with anything. And you are asserting the authority to selectively ban anybody's IP number if you feel like it. And then that person is a federal criminal. If you decide that some individual person can't access LinkedIn's otherwise publicly available profiles. So two points about that. First, our position is narrower than that in that in order to violate the CFAA, one has to act intentionally. And that means it's more than just us deciding to block you. You have to, with knowledge that we have denied you authorization, you have to try to circumvent the technical measures. So it's narrower in that respect. But it has nothing to do with the scraping aspect of this, and it could apply to anybody. Well, in theory, it could. That, of course, is the reason why we put the technological barrier in place, the code-based technological barrier in place. The other point I'd like to make, Your Honor, is that that is also true about password-based systems. One could deny a person, an entity that runs a password-based system for access, can deny that to any person, can deny a password access to any person for any reason. So that really doesn't distinguish our position from theirs with respect to the question of how the CFAA ought to apply. And I do think that our position does, because we are focused on technological, the code-based technological barrier of blocking IP addresses, that it doesn't pose that risk that the court, that Your Honor identified at the court discussing in Van Buren of making widespread, making common conduct unlawful on a widespread basis. It doesn't do that at all. It is focused on the narrow category of circumvention of code-based technological IP blocks. And I do think that there is, if I could, that there is, you know, I think that's the most natural reading of the statutory text, which as the circuit has said, it's not a technical term. It's given its normal common sense meaning. I also think it is the most consistent 
uh, reading of the, the, the statute given its structure. I do think this point is important, the structural point is important, that in the very same piece of legislation that put Section A2 in place, the provision we're discussing this afternoon, Congress also enacted Section A3 to the statute, which made it a CFAA violation to intentionally access a non-public government computer without authorization. So in the very same enactment that we're talking about, that, that involves the statute we're talking about today, Congress expressly drew the very distinction that my friends on the other side... Well, why doesn't Congress that point cut in the other direction? For what possible reason would Congress want to uh, allow... Um uh, protect access to government websites as public, but not other websites as public. Well, I think it, I think it cuts in a different direction. The, the way in which it cuts, I think, Your Honor, is that um, Congress, and, and I think this is evident from the Senate report in 1996. I'm just going to read a sentence from it, if I could. Uh, Congress added the phrase non-public according to the Senate report because it would make clear that unauthorized access is barred to any non-public federal government computer and that a person who is permitted to access publicly available government computers via an agency's worldwide website may still be convicted under A3 for accessing that authority any non-public computer. So it, with respect to government computers, it, it, it definitely drew this distinction. It said, yes, with respect to public government computers, the servers that host public government websites, yes, you have, uh, you, there, there isn't going to be unauthorized access. It's only when you go to a private computer. But the very fact that Congress didn't draw that exact same distinction. Well, well private, private has two website. different meanings here. Private in that context means not public, and private in the other context means not governmental. So they're not the same. Well, but I, excuse me, but wasn't, I mean, the CFAA was drafted before the internet was even in existence. And so the idea of there being a worldwide web where everything is public and the default is public was not really in the mind of Congress at the time, correct? Well, it wasn't in the mind of Congress in 1984 when the original version of the provision was enacted, but that original version only applied to specific financial records. 1996, when the language that we're addressing here Honor was was enacted. The World Wide Web was up and vibrant. There were, by some estimates, 100,000, by other estimates, a quarter million publicly available websites. Then you had you had Netscape Navigator, you had Microsoft Explorer. Congress was well aware of it. That language, which I just quoted from, was from 1996, makes clear that Congress was well aware in 1996 when it enacted the language that we are interpreting today that there was a World Wide Web, that there were publicly available websites, and that this statute was not applied to it. But the point of without authorization was supposed to make hacking, illegal hacking, uh, a crime. And when you're talking about the World Wide Web, how can this be considered comparable to illegal hacking? You're putting in the hands of the private sector the ability to criminalize uh, conduct uh, which is essentially just accessing a publicly available website where the default is that it should be available for all to see. Two things about that. One could say something quite similar about password protected websites that, the, that, you, that if you deny a password and somebody gets in any way, your decision to deny them the password criminalizes their conduct. 
So I don't think it's that's not so I don't think there's a material difference there. With respect to your honor's basic point, I do think our position is much narrower. What we're arguing here today is that when an entity intentionally circumvents a code based technological barrier on access has to be intentional. And then it means they have to. This is not really a barrier to entry. It's a barrier to using that IP site and go use another IP site. Yes, but what we that just means that there's that they it is a barrier to entry. It's one that they're trying to circumvent. They obviously saw it as a barrier of entry. It's what led them to sue us when we started doing this. So I do think it's a barrier to entry. And I do think they understood it as one. And so and I and I think it is and it is indisputably code based. And so I do think that the one one thinks about the way in which the statute is drafted and thinks about the structure. And I do want to make a later structural point, which goes to something that was in the course prior to being about the Stored Communications Act. Now, the Stored Communications Act seems to me there's a structural indicator there that actually supports us. And I'm referring in particular to 18 U.S.C. 2511 2G. In that provision, there is an express carve out that the statute expressly says that this statute does not apply to communications that are, quote, readily available to the public, unquote. And so the fact of the non-applicability of the Stored Communications Act seems to me comes directly from that statutory text. It's not an inference from the phrase without authorization. In fact, if it were an inference from the phrase without authorization, there wouldn't have been any need for Congress to put that express carve out in the statute. So I just I just think that that's another structural indicator here that difference in language implies difference in meaning. Congress knows how to make these kinds of distinctions when it wants to. Didn't here. And I do think with respect to the policy considerations. Would you before you get into a new issue, could you would you take a question, please? Of course, Your Honor. You stated at the beginning that we will not understand unless we have some outside information about how this works. And that will assist us in understanding what the Supreme Court meant by certain words. I don't understand that's ended and I never understood how that's tied together. Ordinarily, we think as judges, we just use regular words and they mean what they say. Reading these words, it seems to me, puts you in a difficult position. So even with the Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court case does with factors that are not involved in our case here. So what is there that should change what these appear to be very common words that are used that we can interpret without any understanding of how this particular art is used throughout the world? The art of communication. So I actually think, Your Honor, that a focus on the statutory text, the words identified access without authorization and just giving them their common sense, common parlance, plain, regular meaning. Yes. Wrongly supports us. Seems to me that what my friends are arguing on the other side is that authorization has to have a very technical meaning. It can only mean gaining access to something through a password system. 
Well, now, the Supreme, the Supreme Court, they're supreme, and they're wonderful people, and they're very intelligent, but they seem to use words in their common meeting, and when they don't, they let us know by telling us, I didn't see anything in the, in the writings we have so far that the Supreme Court has adopted some new way of interpreting these consistent with yours. It's very interesting. I listened to it carefully, but I'm not sure that we can interpret what the Supreme Court said unless they tell us they're using this other means uh, of de defining their words. How, how do we just decide that that's what the Supreme Court meant? I think, Your Honor, if, the, if this court simply gives without authorization its regular common sense meaning, that which is what, what, what the prior decision of this circuit said in Nozzle 2, it's a non-technical term, uh, give it a ordinary meaning. The Supreme Court that, in Van Buren, with regard to access, said that's not true. It isn't, it's the technical meaning, so why should this be different? Well, I think, it, I think that with respect to the, the question of what exceeds authorized access versus without authorization, it linchpin of the court's opinion, I think, was that it said, well, uh, if one was giving the phrase exceeds authorized access its common parlance, the government would have a strong case, but Congress provided a specific technical definition that, of course, supersedes its common parlance, and the court parsed that specific I want to switch gears a little, and I understand I'm taking you over your time. Um, when I started, the, the prior opinion in this case, um, our opinion, uh, simply accepted the proposition that as to how the CFAA fits into this case overall. But it seems quite clear, um, both from the language and from the Van Buren opinion, that you can't and don't have an affirmative civil action in this case because you could only have a civil action uh, if you had the kind of loss that is covered by the statute and, and you, you don't. Is that right? No, we do, uh, Your Honor. And I, I, I'll point to two things. First, the statutory text, and then uh, the, the Ninth Circuit so, but, but you don't – well, let's just stop one minute. You don't have a cross you, – you haven't claimed damages, or you haven't brought a cross, a cross claim, right? We haven't brought a claim for damages. All right, but, but you think that it's the civil provision – that is applicable here, and that's why the the um, state cause of action is essentially preempted. Yeah, yeah correct. Why? That's how it's And not just the not just the criminal one, but the the civil one. Correct. And why? That, 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 well, I think if one looks at this, the statutory text that defines loss, one has to have in order to invoke the civil remedy, one has to have a five thousand dollar five thousand mm -hmm. dollars in loss or damage. And I'm, I'm looking at uh, 1030C4A uh, little i1, uh, and it defines loss to mean, quote, any reasonable cost to any victim, any reasonable cost to any victim, including the cost of responding to an offense. Now, uh, dropping down, now, I'm now going to read how uh, the Power Ventures uh, panel interpreted that language. It said, it is undisputed that Facebook employees spent many hours totaling more than $5,000 in costs, analyzing, investigating, and responding to Power's actions. Accordingly, Van, Facebook Van, what, did Van, what, what did Van Buren say? Van Buren said 
that the damages must be, quoting, an impairment to the integrity or availability of data, a program, a system, or information, and loss likewise relates to costs caused by harm to computer data, programs, systems, or information services, which is certainly a permissible reading of the statute, and it's what Van Buren said. So it doesn't... That's what it says. I'm going to respectfully push back on that, Your Honor, in that it was talking about that statutory language in the context of interpreting the meaning of exceeds authorized access, and the text itself says any reasonable cost to any victim, including the cost of responding to an offense. That's the statutory text. We have Ninth Circuit authority, which I assume continues to be binding, given that the Supreme Court was not addressing this issue in Van Buren, that says the kinds of costs that were incurred in power ventures and that we incurred here are costs that qualify as loss within the meaning of the statute. So I do think it's directly applicable. Your basic proposition is that you could bring an affirmative suit, although you haven't. And we said previously, but you have to look at what it would mean for criminal law because this is all based on the criminal statute. But suppose I thought that only the criminal statute were applicable. Would that affect the preemption question? So, you know, Your Honor, I agree with, I think, the premise of the Court's prior opinion that the substantive scope of the statute is equivalent, whether it's being applied in a civil context or a criminal context. The same words have that same meaning in both. We think that they have a, without authorization, has the meaning that I'm advocating here for today, that when there's intentional circumvention of a code-based technological barrier, then that is access without authorization. It has to be intentional. The point of the cease and desist letter and the way we think about this principally is that it provides unambiguous notice. What I'm worried about is suppose California had a statute that said you can't bar individual people from otherwise publicly available websites. And there might be other constitutional challenges, commerce clause or whatever, but suppose it had that. What I'm wondering is whether that would be a preempted statute. It couldn't exist because whatever are the valid restrictions are applicable under the criminal statute, but I don't know why that precludes states from setting restrictions on what are valid restrictions. And that's essentially what the intentional interference with contract claim would be, a restriction on what's a valid restriction. Yes, and I do think, I don't disagree with you, Your Honor, that there would be a preemption issue there, but I think the court's prior opinion recognized that there are circumstances in which that's certainly going to be appropriate. The other kinds of malicious attacks on a publicly facing website could be defended under the kind of statute that Your Honor just described as being free from any legal liability under state law, the denial of service attacks, attacks where you go in and change the content on a publicly available website, all those sorts of things. This court recognized previously, I think, was that, of course, website operators can engage in self-help to defend themselves against those kinds of attacks, but yet under a statute like the one Your Honor is describing, that would be unlawful under state law, and I think, of course, it would have to be 
uh, in that set of circumstances. The question really here is where the line gets drawn. And it seems to me that um, the, where the court drew it before and the, and the line that my friends on the other side are advocating for is that authorization means uh, password protected. That's got to be behind a password protected gate. And the essential point that we're making is that we think that the line can and should, based on the text, structure, and our venture's precedent uh, and policy, it should be drawn where you have intentional circumvention of code-based barriers to access, even if they aren't password protection barriers to access. We think okay. that that's... Let, let me squeeze in a second. Um, maybe you could help me. Uh, we thought we wrote a, a clear, understandable opinion. Uh, the Supreme Court reversed us, but it was a reversal, um, not of what we said, but a clarification as I see it. And when, we, when I look at the Supreme Court decision, it seems to me that our previous holding that uh, CFAA does not prescribe uh, accessing public available information on a website that anyone with interest can share just seems to me to make irrelevant the Supreme Court decision. For that particular issue, setting aside the world is different and we have all these things in the world, just the words themselves, how can you disagree with that? So uh, I perhaps won't surprise you to say I do disagree with it, Your Honor. And um, I think that the fact that the Supreme Court uh, vacated and remanded for further consideration. Consideration. They did not reverse. Absolutely agree. And but true. I, and as they wanted us to find out if we were inconsistent with the case. We're grateful to have them come send it back to us with a message. But we, when we read the, the wording, it looks like to us that it's not inconsistent with their decision, at least in, unless you can show me otherwise, in the wording itself. So I, I, I do think it is in that the court said the mode of analysis, and this is at page 13 of the slip opinion, is to ask whether it's a, what the court said, it's a gates up or gates down question, whether one um, has, has been authorized to have access to a website. Either the gate is up and you have access, or the gate is down you don't have access. And that's the way you have to analyze the question. Either the user can or cannot access the website. And what we're, our submission is that what's different now, given that analysis, which we think is different from the analysis that, that this court applied previously, that when... Not the analysis, the words. How are the words themselves that we used are different in the sense that we have to relook at this case? I don't think that this court took account of the gates up, gates down idea that the Supreme Court has now said is the way in which one answers the question of whether access is without authorization. And I think in particular that the here, uh, we, the point is that we brought down a gate. We said to HiQ that we are using a code-based technological measure, and that code-based technological language comes out of footnote 8 of the Supreme Court's opinion uh, in, uh, in Van Buren. We're using that code-based technological measure to bring the gate down. 
Okay. Deny you IQ access. All and right. You are very well over your time. Your Thank you. Given our Appreciate questions, that. and we will give you a couple minutes in rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Sharma. Good afternoon, Your Honors. Uh, may it please the court. My name is Renita Sharma, and I represent Pelly High Q Labs the plaintiff in the district court matter. Um, before can I begin, we, Your Honor, we, one uh, I, I, thing It would I, be clarifying to me now uh, to, to review the, the procedural posture. You, um, the LinkedIn filed a request for an indicative order uh, as to whether this case is still alive, and Judge Chen, as I understand it, said he's putting that aside until the appeal is decided, but for our purposes, we do need to know whether the case is still alive. So what do we do with that? Uh, understood, Your Honor. And the case is still alive. There is not a mootness concern here. Um, and the reason is, uh, as the district court correctly found and this court correctly found, the threat that Haikyuu would go out of business is sufficient to state irreparable harm. And that's the same irreparable harm Haikyuu still faces. Haikyuu is not out of business at this time. It, for example, continues to periodically receive commercial inquiries, and when it does, its CEO... I, I am, again, having trouble hearing. Maybe you could either talk into the mic more clearly or... I, I'm sorry, Your Honor. Is that any better? Better, It wasn't yes. your fault. It's, yeah, no, it's technology. That, but I think that's better. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, HiQ is not out of business at this time. It continues to receive solicitations from customers, and it continues to explore uh, the ability to respond to those. Um, and as Haikyuu's CEO said in it, it, our submission to Judge Chen on LinkedIn's motion, Haikyuu is only one commercial inquiry away from a paid engagement. Um, that's the harm the preliminary injunction needs, that, that Haikyuu needs the preliminary injunction to prevent. It's the difference between Haikyuu's ability to restart its business, which it can do um, of course, as you've soon had as... The, but you've had the plenary injunction all this time, <clears throat> right? Yeah, yes, Your Honor, that's right. And it has been like, difficult for Haikyuu to function. It's had trouble uh, retaining employees and customers. Be but that because doesn't because that... why? The injunction's in your favor. So why does that give you difficulty? The uncertainty has been a concern for our business, Your Honor. But we can restart. All the technology still exists. All the data has been retained. And we are able to restart uh, if a customer comes calling. And it's that ability to restart um, that, that the preliminary injunction is uh, ensuring at this time. One other procedural issue I wanted to clarify is there is a CFAA claim pending on behalf of LinkedIn. Uh, it was not pending at the time of the preliminary injunction, but in the interim, the case has proceeded and LinkedIn has filed a CFAA counterclaim. Oh, I see. Has it been adjudicated at all? It has not, Your Honor. Do you agree uh, that after Van Buren, they don't have any cognizable loss or damages? Your Honor, um, that that was not um, it, that was not an issue that was breached on our motion to dismiss because Van Buren hadn't been uh, issued at that time. 
but we do think there is a harm here. We, do, we don't think HiQ has caused anything like $5,000 worth of harm to LinkedIn servers. And so I, I agree. I do think they have a, a, will have difficulty proving harm. On the Does CIA. anything in this case turn on whether it's the civil provision or the criminal provision that is alleged to be preemptive of, of the intentional interference claim, which is the only one we have hanging out there at this point? And for, yes. I, they need to be read consistently, Your Honor. And so I think the fact that the criminal claim, the criminal liability exists is important for this court and was clearly important in Van Buren uh, and was important for this court in Nosal, which was also a civil case. But I think this court has always been aware that the fact that the CFAA does impose criminal liability indicates that it should be read narrowly in both the civil and criminal context. So I do think it's important even though there isn't a criminal claim pending. Your Honor, I want to begin by uh, by addressing um, Mr. Verrilli's first point regarding the textual analysis after Van Buren. Uh, it won't surprise Your Honors to know that we think that Van Buren's gates up and gates down analysis is perfectly consistent with this court's holding in HiQ that the CFAA's discussion of access without authorization suggests a baseline in which access is not generally available, and so permission is ordinarily required. Simply put, Your Honors, Van Buren's reasoning assumes a category of information that is behind no gate at all, and public LinkedIn profiles are squarely within that. Now, Mr. Verrilli uh, spoke to you about the meaning of authorization and the fact that it should be interpreted in its non-technical meaning which is the way this court had interpreted it in its prior opinion. And we don't think there's anything in Van Buren that would displace that, this court's ruling on the meaning of authorization, which was that authorization is an affirmative notion indicating that access is restricted to those specially recognized or admitted. It's that special. Counsel, can I ask you a question about that? I'm sure you saw that in footnote nine, uh, Justice Barrett uh, did uh, refer to a definition for authorization that was more out of the computer context. And specifically, uh, she suggested that authorization might be comparable to requiring authentication. And earlier in the opinion, I think as, as uh, Judge Berzon noted, she used a similar computer context definition for the word access. Uh, is, is the court in any way, do you believe, asking uh, the panel to reconsider what you have just suggested. In other words, possibly to consider uh, using a computer-based definition of authorization that is more akin to authentication than the general idea of permission. Your Honor, I do think that's a reasonable reading of Van Buren. In this particular case, I think the outcome is the same, but I do think Van Buren instructed that this court, when interpreting statutes, should take note of terms that carry technical meaning. And in particular for the CFA, that should be interpreting terms in a computational sense. And of course, uh, Justice Barrett did specifically refer to a meaning of authentication. So I, I do think this court could uh, follow that, that reasoning and adopt a technical meaning of authentication. But I think in either event, whether this court uh, sticks with its original meaning in IQ or whether it adopts a narrower meaning, the outcome is the same because both of those definitions require affirmative consent. 
Justice Barrett's definition requires that consent to be done through an authentication mechanism. And this court's definition was, you know, didn't specifically refer to a password, but it did refer to affirmative consent. And that is the distinction that HiQ cannot meet here. There is no affirmative consent. HiQ concedes, or LinkedIn concedes that, excuse me. What LinkedIn says is there's presumptive consent, but that's no affirmative action at all, Your Honor. And I think that's the distinction that both Van Buren and this court adopted, and which mean that public websites should simply not be covered by the CFA. Thank you. Your Honor, I'll note also that nothing in Van Buren compels a different result on the meaning of authentication, and LinkedIn didn't even really argue otherwise in its briefs. They state that Van Buren relied on dictionary definitions, and they cite four non-technical definitions of authorization. But Judge Berg, as you just noted, the dictionary definitions that Van Buren used were technical definitions. And I think that's an important distinction here. Whether or not the court looks to a dictionary, it's been instructed as to what type it should look to. And Justice Barrett used the Dictionary of Computing Science, and that definition would certainly lead to the outcome that we're advocating here. How do you respond to Mr. Verrilli's argument that a password could be considered comparable to what he's calling now a code-based gates-down approach, which is to impose an IP block? I think the distinction, Your Honor, is one is a prior authorization and one is not. A password is an authentication mechanism that must be passed, a stage that must be passed, as the Supreme Court put it, before you get access. What LinkedIn is trying to do is reverse the burden, and the statute simply can't be read that way. It says without authorization or exceeding authorization. It doesn't say that a public website can simply slam a gate down where there was no gate before. And I think that's the distinction between IP blocks and affirmative password authentication, Your Honor. Why is it, you know, often you go into a store and it says, we reserve the right to deny service to anyone. And if they then deny service to you, I gather it's a trespass to come back in. Is that right? It would be for a store, Your Honor. The difference here is I think both this court and Van Buren talked not about trespass specifically, but about computer hacking. And that's a different context. I think rather than a store, I would point to what Judge Chen pointed to, which is a sign on a public street, or for ease of referring to it, a billboard. You wouldn't say that you require prior authorization to look at a billboard. And you wouldn't say you could hack into a billboard. And I think it's the context of computer hacking that would lead this court and did lead this court in HiQ to find that authorization is required. And we're not in the store context. We're in the public space context. Your Honor, I wanted to respond specifically on the IP block point, which LinkedIn addressed. We don't believe that IP blocks constitute bringing a gate down. And one of the reasons for that is that IP blocks, as Judge Berzon, as you said, simply target a method of a manner of access. And Van Buren specifically said that authorization should not be determined by reference to the particular manner or circumstance in which an individual obtained access. 
This court has considered IP blocks before in the Power Ventures case and found that simply bypassing an IP address without more would not constitute authorized use for exactly that reason. It targets a manner. It does not target authorization itself. Well, it doesn't target a person, an identified person. Exactly, Your Honor. I could pick up my phone and it will have a different IP address than my computer. It does not target the scope of my authorization. It's only a particular manner. I also wanted to address the public interest arguments that are um, emphasized heavily in LinkedIn's brief, Your Honor. Uh, LinkedIn claims that this court's high-Q decision denied operators public-facing website critical means of protecting user data. And, and I wanted to raise three points quickly in response. First, Your Honor, in this case, uh, and this comes down to the procedural issue that, that Your Honor mentioned, the CFA. The application of the CFAA would not just permit LinkedIn to protect user data from unauthorized third-party scrapers. It would permit LinkedIn to stifle potential competitor by using the arm of the federal law. The reason why a preliminary injunction was granted here was because HiQ raised serious questions about its UCL and tortious interference claims. And so for example, it would appear if, if, for example, LinkedIn itself wanted to hire um, some certain category of computer engineers, it could block anybody else who was looking for that particular kind of person so that it could have first dibs on them, as I understand it. There just seems to be no limit to what they're saying in terms of, uh, because it isn't in any way grounded that this was clarifying to me in any notion that their operations are being interfered with. Absolutely, Your Honor. I, I don't think it's cabin, and I think that's why this court found that the public interest favored high cue on the, the first decision, that putting this much um, control of data that users have chosen to make public, making that uh, the sole purview of LinkedIn to decide the scope of, of access to, um, that's itself a public interest concern and, and something this court weighed heavily and should weigh heavily again. Now, our, our earlier, our former opinion didn't in any way buy into any First Amendment limitation, but that argument, or constitutional avoidance, that argument was made here and earlier, I guess, in some of the amicus briefs. Do you think we should be looking at that consideration uh, on, on the ground that, um, yes, there's a state action problem as to LinkedIn, but the question is, uh, again, to the degree they're relying on a, a criminal provision, would there be a problem with um, the, the authorizing the government to bring suits of this kind based on essentially censorship, even if the censorship itself is by a private organization? It's a complicated question, and I don't think you've briefed it, but it's interesting. Your Honor, it is an interesting question. I think I've been. I think about the constitutional issues as, uh, as Justice Kagan put it, icing on a cake already frosted. It certainly indicates the same way that the rule of lenity does that the statute should be read narrowly. Um, I, I, we think that you can get there on a simple textual analysis on the basis that this court already decided that authorization, whether it's interpreted technically or non-technically requires affirmative an affirmative action and that's enough to um, to decide the statute in a narrow way 
the constitutional implications, I, I think, are further evidence that, that this court made the right decision in high um, at whether or not the court decides to actually reach those grounds. Are there any uh, contractual-based uh, limits? Uh, footnote 8 did reference that the court was leaving open the question as to whether these kinds of uh, limitations that are more related to scope uh, than they are to specific technical barriers such as uh, password requirements uh, would still be allowed. I mean, doesn't that suggest in some ways that uh, the kind of uh, restrictions that LinkedIn were trying to put into place would somehow still be permitted? Uh, Your Honor, I think the critical distinction is the public versus private one. So there may be some um, contractual limitations that could apply in the private context, um, but I don't think they can apply in the public context. And it's, it's the question that, that we've already been discussing, that there is no affirmative authorization. And in the absence of affirmative authorization, you cannot bring a gate down, whether that gate is contractual or code-based. So I don't think this court at this point needs to decide whether a contractual limitation might be possible. Um, I, I think here the, the distinction between public and private is enough for this court to decide that there is no authorization required. So your position is that although the, the opinion Van Buren speaks in terms of gates up or gates down, that when it comes to the World Wide Web, effectively the, the World Wide Web, when you post a URL for someone to be able to come to it, that there is no gate. Is that I, right? I think there's two ways to think about it, Your Honor. There can either be no gate uh, because the access is entirely public and there's no authentication mechanism around it, or there can be a gate that is open and cannot be brought down until an authentication mechanism is, um, is put in place. I think either of those get to the right, either of those metaphors get to the right outcome, uh, which is that you have not, which the private companies need to make an affirmative choice to limit access to data before the CFAA would come in to cover it. Your Honors, if there's no further questions, I, I believe I've, I've made all my arguments and we'll rest on that. Okay. Well, I do have one further question. Do you have any response to Mr. Verley's point about the um, government computers sections reference to a non-public computer? I think my answer is the one that is similar to the one that, that you raised, Judge Berzon, when, um, when LinkedIn uh, made the argument. Public versus private when applied to government computers is a very different question than when applied to private computers. And so I think the inclusion of non-public when you're speaking simply and narrowly about the government, which uh, Clause A3 was, um, should not necessarily be read to, to mean that the absence of that same clause in A2 um, should be taken as an indication. It, it's just a very different statutory framework when you're limited to government computers versus when you're speaking about uh, private companies on the internet um, in Clause A2. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Verrilli. Um, you may have a couple minutes, too, to be exact. Thank you. Uh, let me focus then on two points. First, this question of whether an IP block is a manner uh, of uh, access, it's just completely wrong. 
what an IP, what an IP block does is block all access of any kind from that IP address. And of course, what one tries to do in a situation like this is identify every IP address associated with high, high Q and block them all. And that's what we did. But and the I, problem I, I is that with respect to, it, sorry, it, it, you've kind of walked away from any reliance on the cease and desist letter and probably for good reason. Um, and once you do that, it does seem to me that the nature of the technological block is limited to whatever it is. Um, and it's not, and it, it, it bans computers, not people. So, I, I, you know, I really disagree with that. And I, I have to say, I really urge the court to look carefully at Power Ventures and what Power Ventures said about this exact issue, because, you know, I, I don't say this lightly, but I think what you just heard was a pretty serious mischaracterization of what Power Ventures said. Power, remember, what happened in Power Ventures is the password gate was up. Power Ventures was given the passwords of all the Facebook users who, were, who agreed to let them in. And what happened was a different technological gate got brought down, an IP block. And what the, what the panel said in Power Ventures was, Howard deliberately disregarded a cease and desist letter and accessed Facebook's computers without authorization to do so, and it circumvented IP barriers, same as here, that further demonstrated that Facebook had rescinded permission for power to access Facebook's computers. And then if one looks at footnote five, uh, which is I think what my friend on the other side was referring to, it does say simply bypassing an IP address without more would not constitute unauthorized use. But the reason for that is not because it's a manner of access. It doesn't say anything about that, nothing. What it says is it was because the block user does not receive notice that he has been blocked and therefore it isn't right to consider it intentional unauthorized access. But here, of course, when you have the conjunction of a cease and desist letter and an IP block, you have precisely, precisely down 100% the same as what the Power Ventures Court found to be in the language of Environ a gates down. 100% the same. It's not distinguishable. Now, the other point I wanted to make is the, the policy point. My friend on the other side says, well, uh, there's no interference with our operations here. Of course, there's interference with our operations. We make commitments to our members that, when, that, that they have control over the way in which the information that they share as LinkedIn members gets used. One of those commitments is that if you decide you want to take it all down, we promise to take it all down in 24 hours and won't be out there anymore. The other one is, if you don't want changes broadcast, we won't broadcast. What HiQ does with respect to its activities, basically make those promises unenforceable because well, we can do I, those I, things. I, I, I think we dealt with that in the, the earlier opinion, but one but observation I, is that, but, that that's not the kind of oper operations that... Um, the damages and lost parts of the statute and the Van Buren construction that seems to deal with. However, you are over your overtime. So um, if you were the doctor, you. you'd be in big trouble. So thank you very much. Um, um, and we thank both lawyers for this very interesting arguments in this very interesting case. Uh, and Haiku Labs versus LinkedIn Corporation is submitted and we are adjourned. Thank you.